I'm Naira Antoun, Director of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the podcast from Century International. Today, I'm speaking with Amanda Rogers. This podcast is part of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project, where we brought together topic experts, activists, and scholars from the Middle East, Europe, and North America to see what we could learn when we break down area-based silos. Today's conversation comes out of the Militias Working Group. Uh, Today, I'm joined by Amanda Rogers. Amanda Rogers is a fellow at Century International. Thank you, Amanda, for joining today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Really glad you decided to do this um, particular topic. Yeah, so today, uh, what is our topic? I didn't say. So um, yeah, today we'll be speaking about some sort of overlooked angles of comparison when looking at militias or, or non, um, non or hybrid, uh, you know, uh, sort of armed groups, whatever term we choose to use. Each term is problematic, so let's not get uh, too caught there. But today, yeah, we'll be talking about sort of some overlooked uh, aspects of comparison, primarily um, gender and uh, and religion. Um Perhaps you can start us off, Amanda, just give us a a little background as to what your kind of work is. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question to open up with because it's (laughs) very fraught and complicated. But I've done a lot of work on ISIS propaganda in particular and also on transnational white supremacist movement propaganda. In the past uh, two years, I've been working on a book project that really drills down into the phenomenon of infiltration in particular of um, the security services Uh, primarily in the United States, but um, internationally as well because of the way that network ties function in these groups. Yeah, I've been working on, um, I suppose, the militia phenomenon, if you will, and transnational comparative perspectives, specifically as far as um, propaganda is concerned and messaging in different forums. Okay, great. Yeah, because this project was about, yeah, as we said, sort of bringing people together who work on these different uh, regions, but actually your work itself covers um, covers both, which is fairly unusual. Um, so perhaps you can um, say a little bit about how gender features in some of that um, propaganda. Well, it's, it's um, really interesting, I think, because when when people discuss, um, you know, when people discuss a group like ISIS, for example, one of the first things that that gets discussed is the topic of, of um, gender. And I think everybody knows why that is on some level, but we just have to throw it right on the table, right? And say it's it's Islamophobia, it's Orientalism, and a lot of it is frankly just racism and xenophobia that orders this interest um, as a predominant topic in militias, quote unquote, over there. And when you're getting asked questions, for example, about um, the white supremacist movement, gender rarely, if ever, is um, something that is inquired about. Um, and that to me is something that that's very striking in our working group. Um, there were, you know, I, I relatively few, um, comments about this particular topic. And that might've been because I know there was another working group, you know, organized around gender. Um, and what I think I would say about, um, this particular phenomenon in comparative perspective is that, you know, the role of women in non-state armed groups and the propaganda of both, I think is very overlooked in terms of a a hardcore sort of macro analysis and micro analysis. Um, In both respects, women are sort of um, viewed as the exception to these movements because they're not ordinarily depicted as fighting on the front lines in a visible manner. But Mm. that does not mean that they are not equal participants in other equally and if not 
in some ways more important respects in both um, phenomena. I think that that's something very necessary to mention. But I think that that gender is one of these really, really clear examples of why smashing through the the regionally based information silos is very useful because mm. you don't notice um, the striking points of comparison until they're absent, if that makes sense at all. Yes. So in terms of white supremacists, you're saying that gender doesn't feature very much in analysis of, of these groups. Well, it doesn't feature um, in analysis stuff very often, right? But it definitely features in the propaganda itself and in right, the movement. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And and the reason that you're saying you think it's perhaps overlooked is, well, so it's sort of overrepresented in our analysis of ISIS and so on, in part because of like Orientalism and Islamophobia. And, and why is it so absent in, in analysis of white supremacists? Well, part of it, I think, you know, there there is the fact that I, I came to this work as, um, you know, to disclose sort of the biographical explanation that I do think matters here. I mm-hmm, came to my please. work on white supremacist material um, out of personal experience from basically growing up during the abortion wars in Wichita, Kansas. So gender in extremist movements to me has always been very, very um, writ large in my personal autobiography, if that makes sense. And Mm -hmm. I did not want to work on extremism generally, especially not in the Middle East whatsoever for reasons that I'm sure I don't need to go into, but uh, ended up there because of um, accidents of history that I won't, um, you know, go on a tangent too much about. But uh, basically, that is to say, the last thing I was interested in interrogating was the phenomenon of, you know, um, oppressed women in the Middle East and armed groups. And there's part of me that that has a knee-jerk reaction to look for these areas that are stereotyped to pick them apart. Mm. But mm. I have to be careful when um, doing this comparative work to check myself and remind myself that part of the the issue of women's absence in analyses of this topic comparatively isn't just because of say islamophobia on the one hand um it's also because there you know the the approach to armed groups in general uh, just foregrounds the role of men in the first place and uh, there's mm. an erasure of women that that goes on so i think that i need to you know be very explicit about caveating that fact so it, it's a missing element in both um, fields of analysis, I think. On the one hand, absolutely more so because of a lack of Islamophobic frames um, when we look at white supremacist movements. But there's also a much bigger issue here, which is to say the the male-centric approach to armed groups and the ideological movements that they're thought to represent. And part mm. of that is the emphasis on violence and an, a military approach, which I think is very mistaken when you're looking at any ideological phenomenon, you know, you can't afford to um, unconsciously have a, a frame of um, violence writ large or military violence as that's defined cloud out the broader aspects of how these ideological movements function. And mm. so I guess an illustration of this would be much like in ISIS propaganda or in the reason for ISIS's existence as they construct themselves and white supremacist movements, women are absolutely seen as, you know, just as important in terms of fighting for the new tomorrow as men are, albeit in different ways in terms of educating the next generation, you know, and inculcating the ideology um, into the children from, from the jump, basically. 
So mm. I think that that's a big feature that that has to be discussed also. Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, also correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that, um, you know, comparatively, like whether or let's better say whether analysis is about um, armed groups in the U.S. Or, or the Middle East, it seems that in both cases, um, involvement of women is can often be treated as a bit of an enigma. Exactly. Yes. An enigma or there's there's just a whole host, in my opinion, of predetermined assumptions that governs mm-hmm. the questions that that one asks naturally about these groups. And generally that tends to be men are fighters and women are not. So the focus is on the violent aspects of these groups, right? Or at least that's how the general flow of questions that come up sort of occurs. Right. And that also perhaps these women are, there's not much to too much to understand because they're essentially dupes. Yes, exactly, exactly. Much like, you know, if you if you look at, say, the case of Shamima Begum, mm-hmm. which I've done a lot of work on, on her case, particularly the revocation of citizenship, Shamima Begum was uh, one of the, the British young women that went to Syria to join ISIS, and I, I believe she did so in 2014 or 15. She was 15 years old when she did so, and um, basically she was discovered in a refugee camp and ended up having her citizenship stripped um, the the problem with that is she didn't have secondary citizenship in Bangladesh, like the British government said, and um, there has not overwhelmingly been, a, you know, an outcry about this from most of you know Brit- British citizens. Obviously, there are going to be some that have that take an issue with this, but by and large, the the majority opinion on her is good. Essentially, she's betrayed the values of the state, and she she doesn't deserve citizenship which is obviously very problematic um, in terms of um, her role in ISIS, in terms of her age and a host of other factors that I won't really get into um, now. But basically, I've argued in other forums that the reason that Shamima Begum, you know, evokes so much rage and and a, a general sentiment of abhorrence from the public is that Shamima Begum joined ISIS on her own. She was not Mm. brought there by a man. And essentially the only way to understand her in the typical, um, you know, conventional quote unquote Western gaze, right, is if she is not being controlled by a man and coerced to do this, the only way to understand her is that she's completely evil. That's easier to understand her as as a lens than she's a child and she fell for propaganda that is very convincing to its audience or was at that time. So... You know, I think that um, the agency of women is a, is a big issue, but it plays out differently. There's much more in my experience of discussing the issue on a vari- in a variety of media, um, of speaking with ex-extremists um, and so forth. There's a much, much larger space for an assumption of um, coercion that's granted to white supremacist women and a space for forgiveness than operates for a woman that ever would join a group like ISIS. There is this assumption with white supremacist groups that, you know, women join because of the men in their lives and don't really have an option. And if there is a study that's done of these women, very rarely um, do you have, you know, academics and um, media personnel interrogating the basically the role of, of agency and these women's decision to themselves join and bring others in with them. So, yeah, I, I think that it's um, 
a neglected a neglected criteria of analysis, but one that we can't even raise without being very explicit about the the fact that it operates quite differently. Yeah. So there's um there's two potential comparative points, right? So one is like if we compare uh, Shamima Begum uh, and how she was treated with how like white supremacist women are treated, but I'm also curious how is she treated compared to like ISIS men? That's an excellent question too. You know, I I've taught several graduate classes on this topic, and one mm-hmm. of the things I always ask students to do when I'm discussing the phenomenon. You know, because initially when I started working on on her case, it was because students had asked me my opinion on it. Um, And I had them shut their eyes, you know, and I said, raise your hand if you knew that men have been coming back from Syria every single day since the conflict began. And none of them knew this, you know. So the point was to elicit from them, why are you shocked by Shamima's case? But, you know, where is the the lack of shock, I suppose, in, in hearing that men have been coming back from the conflict zone every single day. And this has not been all over international media. Why is that? Why is it that a 15 year old girl on the one hand attracts so much media attention when she was not even a fighter? Right. And on the other hand, the men that are returning from ISIS territory have been actively involved in the violence and returning the entire time. Yet there hasn't been such media and legal interest in their affairs. How do we account for that disproportionate treatment? Right. What factors do we look at um, in terms of framing people's interest in this group? So I think, you know, you can you can talk about, again, the fact that very much uh, part of our structuring um, frameworks for understanding the allure of a group like ISIS to potential sympathizers, uh, people, I, I think, get very tripped up on aspects of, of Orientalist thought that have been, you know, trained and socialized into us over the years that so much so that they become common sense, right? A man returning from ISIS land is going to be looked at as, okay, maybe potentially a threat in the next several years. There's not the same level of scrutiny applied to, um, I think, his inherent capacity to be a literal monster as there is for a woman that joins such a group. Does that make sense? Yeah, and also just to, cl- yeah, and also just to clarify, so have um, male, uh, like men fighters, you say they've been returning back. Have there been cases where they've been stripped of citizenship as well or but just away from the media gaze or or not? Yeah, there certainly haven't been as high profile in terms of the media gaze. Um, In terms of underage men, I'm not Mm. sure about that. Um, But I know that there have been several um, several skirmishes, at least in different states about um, stripping people of citizenship who have gone and joined. But there, I think part of the reason that there hasn't been so much media attention also, one of the, mm. the nuances here, again, has to do with the issue of violence because it's less clear cut, right? When you have, and this is something that I would say to my class to trip them up all the time. You know, if what is Shamima Begum's crime, according to the state, right? It's advocating for ISIS on social media. And Their argument was she had dual citizenship, which she did not, in fact, have dual citizenship. But the next slide that I would show them was a a picture of Esma al-Assad. And I said, you know, Esma al-Assad has been very vocal on social media defending what her husband does. So she is a dual citizen. Should we strip her of British nationality? And the class Mm -hmm. laughed. 
And so my <laughs> response to that was to put a photo of her next to Shamima and say, when you look at them together, though, why is it ridiculous to you that Asma al-Assad might lose her citizenship if we're using the same criteria, right? And Shamima wouldn't. It's because there are all these different assumptions that you've been socialized into accepting and you you basically use as common sense without interrogating them that mm-hmm. Asma al-Assad looks like you, quote unquote, right? This is a blonde woman who doesn't wear a veil. She's not scary to you. The idea that she would be one of them is just out. You can't have it in your mind. It's, it evokes too much cognitive dissonance, you know? So I think... Um, yeah, that's another situation in which um, the the media disproportionate treatment of, of phenomena become important in, in analyzing these things. Right. And as you say, I mean, in any case, Shamima didn't have um, dual citizenship and Bangladesh said they wouldn't take her. But I mean, even if she did, it's sort of this question of, right, people who have dual citizenship their citizenship is made precarious. Absolutely. And it's, it's, I mean, the dirty secret here is what is that saying about the state? It's saying you will never really be British because you are brown and thus removed from being Anglo-Saxon pure, right? That's the message that is hiding underneath, okay, well, let's go to Bangladesh and ask Bangladesh, you know, because her parents are from there. So it's also a message about who has a claim to citizenship that mm-hmm. can be revoked, right? Right. I've never heard of a white supremacist say going to fight in Ukraine, going to fight in any of these transnational battle spaces, which does happen and has happened before the Russian invasion. I just want to be really clear about that. You know, I've never heard of one of them coming back to the quote unquote West and ever facing the challenge of having a citizenship title stripped. You know, and we have to be very honest about the the questions it raises and the implications for who is considered to actually count within the status of um, a nation state's citizenship category. And these are really right. critical and uncomfortable questions, but I don't feel like we can neglect them if we have any hope of of getting past these things. Right. I mean, these fringe cases essentially reveal quite a lot, as you say, about citizenship and who it's for and who it belongs to and who belongs and and actually also syncs syncs quite well in a way with like an an ISIS worldview right absolutely I mean I think I think of these groups as being very symbiotic in their approach to questions of the citizen and you know I mean I know that the intercept published on this several years ago but the notion of the gray zone, right? What both transnational white supremacists and ISIS wants and has always wanted, and they've both been very, very clear about this, is they want to eradicate any space of coexistence between the so-called West and the so-called Muslim world. And to that end, they celebrate one another's attacks. They celebrate the death of who you would think are their own, right? And the reason for that is because that instigates a revenge cycle of communitarian violence. And basically, slowly over time, the hope is that these spaces of coexistence will get crowded out and there's you have no choice if you're Muslim in the West than to apostatize or to leave and live under a group like ISIS. It's basically death or, or Daesh, you know, is uh, the position that, that they want to um, work Muslims into. And the same thing is true um, for extremists on the, the transnational white supremacist side. So much so that, you know, it's really 
frustrating to try to have this conversation in the media because people don't understand how this could actually exist. But there are telegram channels that all are basically jihadi fanboys that are Nazis, you know, because they're working for the same ends. And that's the eradication of, of this in-between space. So, yeah, I think you bring up an excellent point. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of Century International. We're the heirs to more than 100 years of international policy research at the Century Foundation. Today, we focus on the human consequences of policy crises in the Middle East and North Africa, and we try to address our findings to a wide international audience. We're especially concerned with decision makers, whether in MENA region capitals or in the West and Washington, whose decisions can greatly change the trajectory of policies in the Middle East. Please visit us at tcf.org to read our reports and listen to our podcasts. Welcome back to Order from Ashes, the Century International podcast. I'm Naira Antoun, and I'm speaking with Amanda Rogers about transnational trends in citizenship and some overlooked aspects of um, militias transnationally. So, Amanda, yeah, we've been talking um, about about gender, um, which, as you as you said, is something that um, features so much in how we talk about ISIS, the misogyny of ISIS, and so on, and doesn't end up featuring so much in how we speak about or as much, yeah, and how we speak about white supremacists. Um, and similarly around religion, right? That religion features so much in our analysis of, of ISIS um, and tends um, to feature less so in how we analyze uh, right-wing um, extremists. Absolutely. So. I, I would almost say that, that by comparison, you know, religion is the absent um, factor of an anal- or analytical factor in terms of uh, transnational white supremacy. Rarely, if, if ever, I think, does the topic of a religious ideology as possible motivation ever, ever come into play, particularly in in comparative perspective, I think, even though the fact of the matter is many of these white supremacist groups either do have an explicitly religious, um, you know, ideology that they claim motivates them. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. here of Christian identity or basically the the Nazi Odinism you know, animistic sort of approach to to religion, or even, you know, the 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 esoteric Hitler um, worshiping neo Nazis. What I mean to say is that there are a host of religious traditions that are claimed by neo Nazis as motivating forces that never come into mention. But there's also the idea among racist groups that race itself is a religion you know, for the groups that don't claim adherence to like a Christian motivating factor. Can you say what you mean by that? Okay. So basically, uh, let me approach this from um, an angle that uses examples that might be, because it gets very, very complicated very quickly because it's so Yes, it's fantastic. Yeah. Give us some examples. So Christian identity, uh, for example, is a movement and people get very confused whenever they hear this phrase Christian identity, because it's not Christian nationalism. It is not Christian nationalism. Christian identity movement is basically a form of Christianity that teaches uh, that Jesus wants a race war and only white people will go to heaven. And that the way that you will bring, you know, Jesus back to earth and essentially, you know, um, save the world is through instigating race war. It also teaches that, um, the Jews are the literal children of Satan 
and that anyone that is black skinned or, or brown skinned is basically not human um, because of Eve's sexual relationship with the serpent. This is a, a theological movement in Christianity. Mm. It's very distinct from Christian nationalism, but it is the raison d'etre behind many, many white supremacist groups, including the Order, which was a, a really famous group in the United States in the early 80s that still continues to inspire people. So you have a group like the Order that, um, you know, has has been very influenced by this particular teaching of Christianity, right? They're trying to bring on the race war because that's, you know, their, their religious um, end goal, you could say. You also have groups that talk about how regardless of whether or not someone is a Christian identity believer or say a, a racist Catholic, that race should be as important to you as religion itself, right? Or it's basically a different emphasis that's placed on the category of race, but race mm. as a religious tradition in and of itself, if that makes sense. Um, so you've got like a Christian tradition like uh, identity versus say uh, the esoteric Hitler um, worshipers. And this, I, I will be as simple as possible because it gets incredibly out of control very quickly. But there's a whole tradition among neo-Nazis that Hitler is in fact an avatar of Vishnu um, from Hindu tradition. And so basically they worship Hitler. We'll just simplify it that way. Right. But you have several different neo-Nazi groups that will work together regardless of if they are Christian or if they are esoteric Hitlerists, right? Because they view the ultimate goal, or I, I suppose the, the higher objective, right, within the racial category, however that is interpreted religiously. Does that make sense in terms of another way of understanding it? Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. So then, so then what do we missing when we don't look at this because also given what you've just said in a way that like um that people will work with each other across these quite different cosmologies right like one's kind of got i don't know hitler as um vishnu and another has eve um so they'll work with each other across these kind of difference in cosmological sort of world views um if there's this kind of shared racial logic? I mean, it, it sometimes they do. Sometimes they say that they won't. Um, right. But I think one of the big things that we miss is understanding the whole phenomenon, right? Like in reverse, it's it always drives me crazy when someone tries to analyze, say, the Taliban and ISIS and Hamas and Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah as the same thing. Because mm. what what is the same about any of them? The fact that there's a loose affiliation to Islam. Right. But beyond that, you've got the Taliban that's an ethno nationalist. You know, you could say that they're an ethno nationalist fascist movement, which is very different than a group like ISIS that is aggressively expansionistic, wants to take over the whole world and will not compromise with anyone versus a group like Al Qaeda that does advocate in some circumstances for cooperation and negotiation with other groups. Um, and outside of just a loose affiliation to Islam, there's really not that much that you can use as um, sort of a, a rubric to understand these groups. And so to say, oh, these are Islamic armed groups is really, really facile, you know. And I think you, know, you undercut your own understanding of the phenomenon you're trying to name when you approach it that way. And in a similar way, 
possibly in reverse, I suppose, there's a, an mm-hmm. assumed unification to white supremacist groups that looks only at race, right? And when you miss the fact that that race is not just a, a skin color or a cultural issue to some of them, but a, an absolutely theological motivation, it changes the way that you approach your uh, the questions of analysis, the methodological approaches that you are going to take, um, your understanding of what particular uh, you know attacks and propaganda and and movement signals mean. For example, you know, if an attack happened on September 11th that was related to ISIS, people would automatically slot it into their their um, you know framework of of what something means. But understanding the dates in white supremacist circles would be different because people would not necessarily be looking at what well, was it does this happen on Passover, right? Does this happen on any religiously significant date? There's a whole host of symbolic possibilities um, that never are even raised, I guess. And in short, you you wind up understanding what the movement is through a very narrow lens. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's a similar phenomenon, but in reverse, or in reverse in some ways and in parallel in some ways, because race mm. functions as the Islam question, you know, when there are a whole host of um, different factors that splinter off from that, that give you a much better understanding of the complexity of the the field as a whole. Yeah, I mean, also like to go back to gender, there is also this um, this in reverse thing going on, right? Like this kind of under atten- analysis to, to gender when it comes to, um, uh, to right-wing sort of extremist uh, or white supremacist groups and a kind of uh, fixation on the, on the other side. Absolutely. Right. And I mean, I think it's interesting too, because when we're in those silos, right, you can't, you don't even know that that, that comparative factor exists without looking into the phenomenon elsewhere. Right. So if you're just looking at, at, um, you know, a group like ISIS or quote unquote Islam affiliated militias, and you won't think necessarily of the fact that, that race or ethnicity would be such a striking component. But if you step back and you, you make a comparison, say between the Taliban and some of these white supremacist movements, then you're able to unpack, well, you know, the Pashtun, what is Pashtun identity doing here for this group that it's not doing for something like ISIS or something like Al-Qaeda? And without that transnational perspective, I think, of a very, what we're taught to think of as very different animals, mm. you, you're unable to, to really um, parse each particular militia for what it is. And the generalizations end up just, you know, destroying any real use value to your analysis. Yeah. And it sounds like you're saying we don't even ask the right questions, right? When we... Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think so. And I think a lot of it has to do with, A, the silos of information, but B, more importantly, a failure to reckon with the fact that there are silos for a reason and that those silos are both um, self-sustaining but they also come out of a, a whole ontological sort of background that we've been socialized to think in. So without that comparative frame, you know, I don't think that we can ever unravel the damage of, of siloed thought. Thank you, Amanda. That's actually um, a really good note to, to end on. But um, but I will ask you if you have anything to, to add. No, yeah, this, is, this is a blast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, uh, Amanda. Um, 
yeah, you've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century International podcast. I'm Naira Antoun, and I've been speaking with Amanda Rogers as part of our Transnational Trends in Citizenship project, which brings together experts from across different regions. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.